May mercy and grace and peace be yours from God our Father through his Son, his only Son, Jesus the Christ. Remember to wash your hands. I don't know how many times my three brothers and I heard those words from our mom when we were growing up in northeast Nebraska, digging in the dirt, playing with our trucks and tractors, finding rusty nails across the road where the old parsonage used to be, and sometimes weeding in that massive garden. Suddenly we heard the shout, lunchtime, and we were so hungry, we sprinted for the house, slammed the back door, and went right to the table, but then came the order, wash your hands, all of you, go now. May the Holy Spirit give us attentive ears and minds to listen to the word of God, that we might hear a call that is rather different. Remember to wash your hearts. People God dearly loves. There's been a lot of eating recently in our gospel readings from Mark 6 and John 6 over the past number of weeks. All that broken bread and dried fish distributed near the Sea of Galilee. All that manna and quail on the wilderness trek. But then the always filling, ever satisfying, never ending bread of life. Do you recall on the hillside outside Capernaum, above Capernaum, or crossing the Sinai Peninsula, that there was a single word about washing your hands before you sat down on the green grass or the brown sand to eat lunch or supper? But the Pharisees are vigilant. The scribes are alert. They spy the problem immediately. They don't see all 12 disciples, but they see some of Jesus' followers. And those they see are eating their loaves of bread with, this is at the end of verse 1, hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, it's not that the disciples hadn't bothered to scrub and carefully clean their fingernails and they had black grime on their palms as I did back in my roofing days. It's that the men following Jesus weren't following the rules because as the clarifying and emphatic parenthesis in today's gospel tells us, the Pharisees and all the devout Jews don't eat unless they wash from elbows to knuckles. That's the tradition they observe. And there's more. When they return home from shopping, they are strict in their ritual washings. They actually baptize. That's the word that's going on. Their cups and bowls and vessels and even the dining couches that they recline on. Because anything they have touched may be non-kosher or it may have been touched by a Gentile in the marketplace. And anyone that they have even brushed against If that person is a Gentile, well, then the Jews believed that they needed to be purified. Now, 
Yes, there was a mosaic code about all the different ways you could be made unclean, all the times you had to wash for purification. Check out Leviticus 11 to 15 at some point. And I'll remind you of something I've shown some pictures of in a Bible class. The public mikvahs, which are the ancient purification baths, actually still used today by some Jews. The ones I saw in Israel had a small barrier on the steps down into the pool. Why? So that you didn't bump into someone defiled as you walk up after you've sprinkled or poured water to make yourself ritually clean. Now back to Mark 7. The proud and pious Jewish religious leaders challenged Jesus. Why don't your disciples follow the rules? Why don't they hold to the tradition of the elders? Why do you allow them to regularly eat with unclean hands? The phrasing there in the Greek tells us two things. The Pharisees have concluded that this is not a one-time event. All of Jesus' disciples do this all the time. Now I'm going to push pause right now and ask you to consider tradition and traditions with me. And I'll warn you, this might be a little uncomfortable. Some of us love and treasure traditions, at least certain ones. Some of us downplay and maybe even disparage traditions, at least certain ones. You may have a family tradition about how you celebrate birthdays. You may have a tradition about wearing your favorite team's jersey whenever you watch a game. I'll be wearing a Cardinals one on Wednesday afternoon at Bush Stadium. You may, you probably do, have traditions about how you decorate for Christmas and how you wrap and exchange and open your presents. Have you noticed that churches have traditions? You have? Yeah, I hope so. One of our traditions will happen next Sunday. For quite a few years at Crown of Life, we've had a single divine service on a fifth Sunday of the month, followed by a Jubilee Sunday Fellowship brunch. I love both of those traditions. But here are some that might cause consternation. Should we fold our hands to pray? If so, like this or like this? Should we stand or sit or kneel on the floor when we confess our sins? Should we bow our heads when we speak the beginning of the Gloria Patri at the close of a psalm? Should we stand to sing a doxology? And why didn't we stand for the fourth stanza of the opening hymn? Should we reverence as we approach the altar for the Lord's Supper? Should you open your hands or open your mouth to receive the body of Christ? Should you receive his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins with an individual cup or with the common cup or by intinction? Is it okay to make the sign of the cross? Is it okay not to make the sign of the cross? If we do, how often in a usual worship service? If so, on your forehead, across your chest, with your arms crossed? And and just how do you hold your hand? And do you cross from right to left or left to right? 
Now, I'm not going to lead you in a rousing chorus of the song Tradition from the great musical Fiddler on the Roof. But I did want you to ponder with me how we too can hold on to traditions of men. Because you see, none of the traditions I just named are commanded or forbidden by our Lord Jesus or in his written and revealed word. They can have value as expressions of faith and of Christian piety. Let's go back again to Mark 7. The Pharisees and scribes confront Jesus. They think they've nailed him, but Jesus nails them, and he gets to the heart of the matter. The law, the commandments of God, included all his important ceremonial laws spoken to and through Moses. They were given to set apart God's covenant people. But what's happened? Those commandments of God have been turned into traditions, and they've added and multiplied until they become a burden. And they have assumed, at least the Pharisees and the scribes have, that the law will lead them to righteousness. The law does not lead to righteousness. The law leads to Christ, and Christ is our righteousness. Here is truth in Galilee. Here is truth in San Antonio. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's Jeremiah 17. Create in me a clean heart, O God. That's David's Psalm 51 prayer after Nathan says to him, You are the man. Rend your hearts and not your garments. That's the call to confession in Joel 2, which we hear every Ash Wednesday. My mother told her four sons to scrub and to keep on scrubbing. The Jewish religious elite told the disciples that they needed to clean their hands from elbow to knuckles, focusing on exterior purity, on morality, on looking your best, on trying your hardest. But we can't do it. We can't scrub with lava soap with volcanic pumice. We can't use the strongest sanitizer. And we need to stop trying. Because we can't clean up all the filth, all the sin, all the guilt, all the shame that isn't on our hands and on our faces but hidden here. Jeremiah didn't only proclaim law when he spoke of the deceitful heart. He was also Yahweh's mouthpiece to proclaim the gospel in his book of comfort, especially in these words from chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How does this happen? It happens because Christ loves the church and gave himself up 
for her. He loved so much that he went to the cross pure and innocent and willing to suffer and die. And through this, to cleanse his bride, shared with dirty-hearted sinners by the washing of water and the word, leaving us without spot or wrinkle, but holy, without blemish. My sermon title, I think, needs to be changed. Don't remember to wash your heart. You can't make it clean. Instead, remember and rejoice that Jesus has done this for you. Your heart is clean in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.